The following message was given by Shelby Murphy on Sunday, February 18th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. It's good to see your faces. It's good to hear your voices. Uh, Like Jonathan said, uh, welcome to this first Sunday of Lent. We are beginning our uh, trek up the mountain, so to speak, to um, Easter. Um, my name is Shelby. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be back up here with you guys this morning. Uh, if you got your Bibles, uh, turn with me over to, let's see, where we want to start this morning. Uh, how about we go to Luke chapter 3. That's on, if you got your pew Bible, it's on page 858. And I'm a little confused because uh, I'm, I'm, we're going to be jumping around a lot here in Luke. I'm just trying to remember where I actually wanted to start this morning. We're going to start in Luke chapter 3. Uh, it's on page um, 858 of your pew Bible. Now, I want you to keep put one finger there and go back two pages to page 855. We're going to be going back and forth a lot between um, chapter 1 and we will uh, get to chapter 3. Um, we're going to be in these two sections today, but we are embarking on a new series in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and let me just tell you, we are not going to be in any hurry uh, through this Gospel. We're going to take our time. I, I, I say that, but then you notice in your bulletin that we're covering uh, almost four chapters today. Um, but just know today is the um, exception. Uh, and I'll tell you why here in a second. Uh, but going forward, we're going to be taking this in much, much smaller chunks. Um, and also, please know this, this time in Luke uh, is not going to be without um, uh, interruptions. Um, there will continue to be times when we'll set Luke aside so that we might concentrate on um, uh, other things, um, like Easter, for example, um, or our normal sort of summer rhythm of looking at uh, wisdom literature, whether that's Psalms, Proverbs, or perhaps something else this summer. Um, but we're starting here in chapter 3 um, simply because we've just come out of the Christmas season, where we have historically spent a lot of time in Luke, as his account is the most detailed, it's the most um, uh, iconic Uh, So we didn't want to rehash that. Instead, uh, we're going to start at the inauguration, really, of Jesus' ministry at his baptism. So to get us there, I volunteered today as tribute. Uh, So my goal today is not only to introduce this series, but to move us to this place in the gospel that sets us up for future um, weeks, but you, you may also be sitting there thinking, why this gospel? There are other, maybe more accessible gospels uh, for us to tackle, and, and I hope the answer to that becomes clear by the end. But we're going to start again in a weird place. Chapter 3, looking at verse 21 and 22. I'll read this for us. Now, when all the people were baptized, And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Let me pray for us today. Father, 
we need your help today. I need your help today. I am completely out of my depths today, Lord. I am completely dependent on your spirit, depending on your power, and dependent on your voice. We need to hear your voice today. So open our eyes, open our ears to what this gospel is telling us today about your son, Jesus, about your plan of redemption from before the world even began. So work in our hearts today something new. And I ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So when I read this passage, my cinematic brain goes into overdrive a little bit. Um, This scene, this story is actually in all four of the Gospels. Uh, Each adds their own nuance. But each of these Gospels invites us to see the event of Jesus' baptism in relation to, to a larger context. And like any good TV show or, or movie, what we get here is the opening scene of a movie that asks a question, how did we get here? There's so much going on behind the scenes in these two short verses. And if I were directing this movie, I, I don't... Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think they've shown Jesus' baptism in that chosen TV show, have they? I, don't, I think they've referenced it, but they never showed it. So if I was asked to direct this episode, or asked to direct uh, a, a movie based on this, I would open with this scene, actually. You would see John maybe in the water, see him look up at someone walking towards the water. He'd be kind of you know, blurry and fuzzy in the background. And we would hear him say, as he does in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Fade to black. And then what would follow would be a series of flashbacks. I'm a fan of this type of storytelling, if you couldn't tell, from Lost to almost any Christopher Nolan film. So, So much has led to this scene. It's loaded with so much prophetic fulfillment that you can't help but think back. And what I would do is immediately after this opening scene, I would cut to the opening titles. And in the background would be the camera coming over the shoulder of Luke as he was writing. And then as the camera zoomed in, we would see that he was writing to the most excellent Theophilus. You know, you, you, you get, you know, rings of like, you know, the um, Lord of the Rings a little bit going on. I know, see, again, that's, that's, that's where I'm pulling from. Uh, and then we would see flashes of different scenes uh, in these opening chapters of Luke 1, culminating in verses 1 through 4. Flip back over now to Luke 1, because we're going to be here for a good minute or so. Let me read these for us, these opening four verses. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, this paragraph in our modern Bibles is actually one long sentence 
in Greek. I've, I've, I've heard this sentence described by New Testament scholars as the most carefully and artistically crafted sentence in the entire New Testament. So our author Luke here is taking very special care here. But I suspect that as you read this long sentence, nothing is really standing out to you. It doesn't strike you as a particularly stimulating message. There's nothing in here about how we're supposed to live our lives, nothing about what we're supposed to do. There's no reference to God here even. All you have here is Luke basically giving us his research methodology for what he's about to write. But, but what this passage does do is plant something in our brains. It gets us poised to receive something that Luke is eager to give us in his gospel. He's trying to, to orient our thinking in a specific way so that we don't miss the impact of what he's going to spend 24 chapters giving us. He's writing for a purpose. Luke is not just kind of doing this in his free time on the side. He's on a mission. He wants to accomplish something. But who in the world was Luke? If you're like me, when I first started reading my Bible, I think I thought he was one of the uh, 12 disciples of Jesus. He's one of those guys Jesus spent you know, so much time with. And I, I, I wasn't completely wrong there. You wouldn't be completely wrong there, but, but history records that Luke was, was probably born around the same time as Jesus. He, he may have been a little bit younger, born in a place called Antioch, located in southern Turkey um, now, but he was born actually into a Greek family. He, he was a physician by profession, but in the case of this letter, he's really playing the role of um, an investigator. He's, he's one of those CSI guys who collects all of the evidence. And in Luke's case, he's collected eyewitness testimony. And what this letter is then is his report. It's his orderly account that we just read of the truth of Jesus' life, teaching, and ministry. This book was written probably, this letter written probably about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, but Luke carries out this investigation in a very precise um, historical window. Many of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry are still alive, but they won't be for much longer. So Luke takes this opportunity to interview the eyewitnesses who are still alive and compiles both the Gospel of Luke and its sequel, the Book of Acts. Put together, Luke contributes more words, more sentences, and verses to the New Testament than any other author, even though Paul wrote, you know, more books. Um, and so as we go through this letter, I want you to notice how he takes his time. He uses lots of words, including many specific details and helpful stories and illustrations, many of which you don't find in the other Gospels. Luke was a close friend of Paul. He accompanied him on many of his travels. He, he was also an, an understudy of sorts and personal physician to, to, fall, to Paul. But Luke himself was not an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. 
He was not one of the 12 disciples. He might have been one of the 72 disciples Jesus sends out later in Luke 10. But Luke probably came to faith in Jesus as the early church was just getting started. He was a Gentile from Antioch. He wasn't Jewish ethnically and probably not religiously either. He didn't grow up in the temple. He wasn't acquainted with the Old Testament or looking forward to a coming Messiah. Like many of us, Luke became a follower of Jesus as an adult. And because of that, he had lots of questions. And I think this is helpful for us today because his inquisitiveness, his inquisitive and skeptical mind actually seeks to answer many of those questions in this writing, in his study and in his writing. But um, uh, along with coming to faith as an adult with a sort of secular background, Luke is an extremely educated and intelligent man. As a doctor, he would have studied medicine and science. As a writer, his historical accuracy is on point, and his Greek, which is unfortunate for me, is perfect. In a culture where less than one out of ten men were educated, Luke is highly educated, and he uses all of his intellect to love Jesus, to study Jesus and serve Jesus by writing long treatises about Jesus. So for those of you who are highly educated, skeptical, and or love science and medicine, Luke is a reminder today that intellect is not an enemy of Jesus. Your mind, your questions, and your education are all gifts given to you by God And they are tended to be used for Jesus as tools of mission to help others know and love Jesus. Luke would have written both this letter, um, again, and the book of Acts, somewhere around 62 uh, AD, which would have been immediately after the events in Acts 28. He probably would have been familiar with the gospel of Mark, but he's writing to a gentleman named Theophilus. Again, who in the world is Theophilus? And why is Luke writing to him specifically? Just to give you some context here, not much is known about him. He's mentioned both here and in the book of Acts and was most likely a high-ranking or influential Gentile for whom Luke wanted to provide a very detailed historical account of Christ and the spread of the gospel through the Roman Empire. He was probably a very learned man, And he was probably a relatively new believer. And from the details that Luke provides in his letters to him, Luke is probably writing answers to some very specific questions that Theophilus might have had about Jesus and this new Christianity. And Luke's intention was to give Theophilus certainty that the things he had been taught were indeed true and trustworthy. And what he's doing in these opening verses is getting our eyes directed, our minds oriented, so that we might be in a position to not just read this gospel and think, oh, that's interesting, but instead to read this gospel and receive it 
um, see from it the impact that God is intending for us to receive. So what I want to do this morning as we begin this series is to focus on these critical phrases here in these opening verses. Phrases that bring illumination to the rest of this book, that shed some light on what it is that Luke is trying to, trying to um, accomplish here. To continue the um, movie metaphor, Luke is standing at the front of the theater handing out 3D glasses to all of us. I don't know if you've ever seen a 3D movie without those 3D glasses. It's terrible. Everything is a little blurry. It's not clear. But once you put those glasses on, everything comes alive. Colors are brighter. Images are clearer. And Luke is standing here at the top of this letter handing us all 3D glasses with these opening verses. There is something necessary here for us to see to receive the full effect of this gospel. And then after that, we'll jump back to that opening baptism scene, hopefully with a little bit more context. And the first phrase I want you to take note of um, is in verse 1. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Instead of accomplished, some of your translations may say fulfilled. In Greek, the word looks like this. It's a big word that's deliberately been chosen by Luke to communicate something special. Notice what Luke doesn't say here. I'm going to give you an account of all of the things that have taken place among us. No, he says, I'm going to give you an account of the things that have been fulfilled, the things that have been accomplished. And as soon as he uses that word accomplished or fulfilled, synapses should start firing in our brains because what Luke is about to set out for us is the culmination of something, the fulfillment of something that has already been in the work, something has already been in, in existence for which these events that Luke is about to record are the fulfillment of. But what is it the fulfillment of? What are all these stories that Luke is about to tell us in great detail the fulfillment of? And this is where both flashbacks and flash forwards will come into play in my movie right here. Because we are meant to remember or flash back to the beginning of the Old Testament here. To the disobedience of Adam and Eve. That first act of rebellion against the authority of God. Immediately upon that happening, God set into motion a plan. And his plan was a rescue operation because he didn't want man left in the condition that man had put himself in because of his sin against God. Now, this sin wasn't a surprise to God. In his sovereign wisdom, he knew this was going to happen. He, we read later that this plan, this purpose was laid from the foundations of the earth. But it's at the point of this rebellion, this sin, that God now begins to put the plan into motion. In fact, we read right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. You don't have to read it or turn there, but I'll read it for us. When God begins to utter the words of cursing and he speaks to that serpent, he says, I will put 
enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or another translation, one will come whose heel you will strike, but he will crush your head. The serpent is, of course, Satan, but God is saying from the very beginning that one is coming who is going to gain ultimate victory over sin, over Satan, over death. There is one who's coming, the offspring of a woman, who will come and crush your head. And I I do find it funny that, notice he says, her offspring. Normally, you would hear, their offspring. Or at the very least, his offspring. I mean, imagine this scene. Adam is standing right there. And he says, her offspring. He's like, what? What's going on here? Uh, And God says, it will be the offspring of a woman that crushes the head of the serpent. Implying that man, a human man, will have nothing to do with the conception of this offspring. Now... In our cinematic brains, flash forward back up to Luke 1, verse 26, where we read, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And this angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. There's a plan, and God's setting it into motion here. And just a few chapters later in Genesis, God comes to a man named Abraham and says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Basically, he's telling them to do something very unusual and out of the norm. Because I want to make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Listen, I I want you to do this unusual thing because I'm going to make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I'm going to make your name great and you will be a blessing. And then he says something very unusual there in verse three. He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Something is going to come out of you that is going to be a blessing to all peoples of the earth. Again, there's a plan that God is instituting. And from this point on, more of this plan is slowly revealed to us. Prophets speaking the word of God, dropping these hints of a coming salvation, of a savior, of a king. We learn he's not just going to be a descendant of Abraham, but he's going to be from the tribe of Judah. And he's also going to be a son of a particular king, King David. And so the people who are listening to these prophecies find themselves standing on tiptoes, so to speak. Watching, scanning the future horizon, wondering who this person is and when he will come. They check out every king that comes along wondering if he's the one and they are constantly disappointed. 
So the Old Testament is nothing more than one of those giant foam fingers you see at football games, pointing forward and saying something's coming. There is one who's coming. Flash forward now to Luke chapter 2, where we are introduced to a man named Simeon. This baby Jesus in his golden fleece diapers is brought to the temple. And Mary hands this. Now, remember, this newborn baby hands this newborn baby over to Simeon, who the text tells us becomes quite ecstatic. He can't, he can't contain himself. Now, for you mothers out there, imagine what this mother is thinking. She just handed over her newborn to some wild man who is probably holding that baby up, probably like swinging him around, screaming. <laughs> Settle down, bro. That's, that's my baby you're holding. Uh, and in the midst of all this, uh, he prays this prayer here in Luke 2, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Basically, he's saying, I can just die now. My life is fulfilled. And then notice this phrase right after that, your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. What Luke is saying when he uses this word accomplished or fulfilled in verse 1 is that all of that waiting, all of that preparation, all of that building anticipation, these events that I'm going to record in this gospel are not just history. What I'm recording for you is the fulfillment of God's plan to save. I always think of a symphony when I think about this. Yeah, I know, go figure. The first movement of a symphony slowly and deliberately lays out the themes for the rest of the symphony. These themes then have additional layers added to them through subsequent movements until finally you arrive at the last movement where everything that's been anticipated over the previous movements finally arrives in its climactic Conclusion: Everything that was anticipated comes to fruition. It's revealed. It's fulfilled. The composer's plan is accomplished. This is what this word in verse 1 is communicating to us. This is what Luke is wanting to tell us about. Again, it's not just Luke in our Bibles. Think about how the other New Testament writers spoke about it. Paul says in Galatians, but when the fullness of time had come. He says it in Romans as well. For while we were still weak, at the right time. Luke is telling us in this very first verse that these events that he is about to recount for us, Jesus' arrival on the scene, the subsequent 30-odd years of his life, culminating in his death and resurrection, these are all the fulfillment of, of God's plan in Jesus. And please don't miss this. In Jesus. God's purposes are accomplished 
in Jesus. God's rescue operation, his plan of eternal purpose is accomplished in Jesus. This is what Luke wants to tell us about. Let's keep reading in Luke 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitness and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Notice how emphatic Luke is about his care with what he is about to reveal. He wants to present for us an orderly account. He's researched all the way back to the beginning. He's conducted interviews. How else would we know, for example, that Mary pondered all these things in her heart? How do we know that? How does he know that? It's because Luke went to Mary's house and asked her. He's conducted extensive research. He's given us an orderly account. He's a doctor, and just like, just like a good doctor, he is careful. He is meticulous. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Luke is far and away the longest of the four Gospels. And the reason why it's the longest is because Luke contains material that none of the other Gospels contains. Most of our understanding of the birth of Jesus, right here in Luke... We are completely dependent on Luke for our understanding of a man named Zacchaeus who shows up in no other gospel. We are completely dependent on Luke for the fact that we know that there was a thief on the cross who at one point turned to Jesus and said, please forgive me. And then Jesus turned to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's in no other gospel. It's Luke that we are indebted to, and, and there are several parables that we, that we would not have if Luke had not written this orderly account. The prodigal son, right here. Or the parable in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke's gospel is a thorough, extensive, carefully constructed, elegantly written account and there's absolutely no mistaking what his subject matter is. He's saying he's writing to give an account of the fulfillment of God's purpose to provide salvation for man. And what does he talk about then? Who does he talk about? Jesus. Luke wants us to know that he's writing about is the fulfillment of God's purpose to save and all that follows after is about Jesus. God's purpose to provide salvation is accomplished in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God is at work. He is accomplishing his purpose. His eternal purpose is being accomplished in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling, saving, rescuing the world for himself. And the accomplishment of God's purposes finds its special focus in the cross. Everything culminates. As, you trace, as we trace our way through this gospel of Luke, you're going to see things just kind of moving inexorably to the cross. 
Because it's here where everything culminates. It's not just his own life that Jesus is talking about when hanging on the cross, whenever he says, it is finished. He's not saying it's over. He's saying it's done. It's completed. God's purposes are fulfilled. They're accomplished. And so we will find ourselves increasingly on the movement towards the cross as we move through Luke. So so what do we learn from the way that Luke opens his gospel? We learn that God's plan of salvation, his rescue operation, is being fulfilled in Jesus. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But, But notice, it's not just some generic world that God is trying to save. Luke wants us to see that this plan of God to save is directed towards us. It is real people that God is seeking to save. One of the unique features of this gospel is Luke's special attention to individuals. He names names. He names people. And he's trying to communicate something here. You'll notice he puts an emphasis on women who in that culture did not have a prominent place in society. Jesus is coming to provide salvation for all people. Anyone who trusts him can have salvation through his provision. We get names like Elizabeth and Mary Magdalene. We learn of Zacchaeus. We read about Joanna and Susanna. Luke gives them names. There is a particular attention on people and individuals as God's plan of salvation is being worked out. Now, look at that last phrase found in in verse 4. To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophysis, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Some translations say that you may know the truth. And even though this is formally addressed to Theophilus, there's no questions that this gospel was written for broad circulation. Theophilus probably funded its, its broader circulation. So when Luke writes in verse 4 that you may have certainty, what he's saying is that everything I'm going to write here is true. It really happened. I've gone out of my way to write down the facts just as I've received them. And by saying that, he's actually saying more than that. He's saying not only are these things true, but it is important that you believe them. Because in believing them, you will find faith that saves. You can know the truth. His purpose in writing this gospel is to secure faith for those who read and respond to this gospel. And if there's already faith present, it's here to strengthen your faith, to strengthen your certainty, your assurance. Now, with verse 1 there as our foundation, flash forward back to our baptism scene in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Just prior to these verses, we learn about another one of these named individuals, John, commonly referred to as John the Baptist because his practice was to baptize those 
who responded to his message of repentance from sins. John's, again, John's birth is meticulously documented for us by Luke in chapter 1, including a, a visit from an angel to John's father, Zechariah, telling him that his son would prepare the way for a savior. So there is a lot of immediate prophecy wrapped up in these two verses in chapter 3. And if you're familiar with this scene, you'll notice that Luke's account is pretty thin. It is pretty short. Um, Matthew particularly devotes a lot more time to describing the scene, but, but as with most of Luke, the devil is in the details with him. He draws out details that some of their gospel writers don't. And I want to draw our attention to just a few of them with our remaining time. As we've already mentioned, Luke is interested in showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. John is the forerunner of Jesus. He says earlier in this chapter, in, in verse 16, I baptize you with water. This is John talking. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is the fulfillment of the prophecies in Isaiah 43 and Malachi 3 concerning this prophetic forerunner. Isaiah, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In Malachi, behold, I send my messenger, John, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you shall, who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, said the Lord of hosts. Fulfillment. And Luke, just like Matthew and Mark, makes this distinction concerning John there at the beginning of Luke chapter 3 and John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet that we just read the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his path straight God has always ruled over his world but the kingdom of heaven comes when God climactically exerts his power to accomplish the salvation of his people. John here is simply announcing that this decisive time of salvation is at hand. Jesus is the fulfillment of John's ministry. The one greater than John inaugurates this kingdom. It's almost as if the baptism is secondary to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of John's ministry. Another thing to notice here, Jesus is described as praying. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, none of the other gospels mention this. But why mention this? Well, Luke loves to picture Jesus in prayer. 
He's going to show him praying at all the crucial turning points of his life. Here at his baptism, at the selection of the 12 apostles in chapter 6, at Peter's confession in the beginning of chapter 9, at the transfiguration at the end of 9, in Gethsemane in 22, on the cross in 23. He tells us that Jesus repeatedly went to the wilderness to pray in chapter 5. And that he spent whole nights in prayer in chapter 6. So even in Jesus' life, there is a correlation between earnest prayer and the blessing of God. Now, what blessing might Jesus have been praying for after, after his baptism? Luke doesn't mention why here, but a later Luke passage might suggest an answer. You don't have to turn there, as I'll have it on the screen. But in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus is actually teaching on prayer. And he says this, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So what should obedient children ask from their Heavenly Father? For the Holy Spirit. What could Jesus be praying for here after his baptism? The Holy Spirit. Because look what happens immediately after. In verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. God confirms his messiahship. He confirms his favor on him. God answered his prayer. And again, this scene, this detailed scene here, fulfills prophecy concerning Jesus. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant who I am, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged Till he has established justice in the earth. Luke specifically shows that Jesus' baptism comes with a divine confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. And what this task will be, what it'll look like, how he's going to rule, how he will deliver, are questions that the rest of this gospel are going to answer. But the emphasis here in these two verses is that heaven has spoken. God has revealed his Savior. And let me just begin to close here. This scene is actually, it's so much more than some sort of, you know, weird where's Waldo of like prophecies in Luke. If you've been baptized, think about your baptism. To be baptized is to make a statement about your loyalty, about your allegiance, and your identity. So when Jesus comes to be baptized here, he is identifying himself with people who needed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Part of the glory of Jesus' incarnation of him coming to earth 
is that God would willingly stoop into human history, sinful and broken as it is. The sinless Son of God is willing to identify himself with the sinful sons of God. Sinful people that we're going to hear more about next week. This is why God's voice from heaven is good news for us today. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is the son of God. Just like Adam, just like the Jewish people in the Old Testament, just like you and I today. This son is loved by God. Again, just like Adam, just like Israel and us. But unlike all of those other people, this son is perfectly pleasing to his father. He is a holy and obedient son of God. And the surprise of the gospel here in these two short verses is that this pleasing, holy, and obedient son didn't just come into history just to enjoy the love and pleasure of his heavenly father. Good job, son. Instead, we see at his baptism that the sinless Jesus is identifying himself with sinful humanity. He went under those waters of baptism as a way of saying, consider me to be one of you. And ultimately, he became one of us so that he could take our place and take our punishment. And the sacrificial kindness of God comes into sharper focus when we see the way that the Father's love and pleasure at Jesus' baptism will soon be replaced by the cup of wrath at the cross. Jesus willfully identified with sinful humanity so that sinful humans could be identified with his righteousness. And I pray that our hearts grasp this truth today. In Jesus, in Jesus, we are the righteousness of God despite our sin. This means we don't get to boast in our goodness. What has our goodness ever done for us in the end? We need the security and peace that comes with Christ's perfect righteousness. And if you don't have Christ's perfect righteousness in you today, pray and ask God for it. If you don't have the security and peace today, pray and ask God for it. So I'll end where we began. Why are we doing this today? Why are we doing this gospel? For the same reasons Luke is writing this letter. So that it would produce in us a growing affection and passion for Jesus our Savior. That we will become increasingly aware and increasingly appreciative of the salvation we have received. That we would continue to grow in His righteousness. Let me end with J.C. Ryle, who wrote this over a hundred years ago. It would be well if Christians studied the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt, all Scripture is profitable. It is not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another. 
but I think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little more about the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, why do I say this? I say it because I want Christians to know more about Christ. It is good to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are all matters pertaining to the king. But it is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face, and to behold his beauty. This is one secret of imminent holiness. He who would be conformed to Christ's image and become Christ-like must be constantly studying Christ himself. This is what I anticipate each week as we gather. It's what I know your other pastors anticipate as well, that as we behold Christ's beauty, it will draw from us fresh passion, fresh affection, fresh love for our Savior. To him be the glory today. And in the coming weeks and months, as we study him and behold his beauty. Let me pray for us. Father, introduce us to your son, Jesus, over the coming weeks and months. For some of us, maybe for the first time. For others, maybe it's, it's the hundredth time. Regardless, help us to grow in our certainty and assurance of who he is and what he's done for us. Father, use this book to remind us of what a great salvation we have. Also use it to remind us to share this good news with others. Even now, bring to mind friends, family, co-workers who don't know you. Use our lives, our relationships with them, the opportunities you've given us to share about who Jesus is, what he taught, what Jesus has done with them, that they too might have eternal life. Father, bring those people in our minds to a saving knowledge of you. Use us and use our time in this book to that end. You've been listening to a message by Shelby Murphy, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.